2: California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! From the mendacious clutches of false spring, it's election shock therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me in this unexpectedly sunny Google Hangout are Matt Kukum. and Mr. Crumb. Guys, do you believe in false spring?
0: Absolutely, at least here in Minnesota.
2: This happens every year. Uh, It's early March. It's going to be 55 degrees this weekend, which Mm. for Minnesota qualifies as like sweatshirt and shorts weather. And I know, I know we are still a foot of snow away from seeing actual (laughs) spring. I'm not kidding. It's going to happen. It might happen in late March. It might happen early April. It might happen in mid June. I don't know when it's going to happen, but we're going to get like another foot of snow and we're going to rue this sort of, you know, being lured into letting our guard down here in early March. So I'll take it while it lasts, but I'm not buying it.
0: Yeah. It's going (laughs) to be really nice this weekend. And then I think like over spring break proper is supposed to cool off again. It's just like, ah. What a a, a, a so.
2: good spring break ice storm is exactly what we need. That's that's oh, right there. Yeah, yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah, precisely.
2: Mitch, dare I ask, how's the weather in South Carolina? Oh, it's chilly. It's
1: very cold down here. Mm. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. How chilly give, give is it? Attempts.
1: Yeah, it's 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 been very cold the last day or so. I mean, I think last night it dropped down to I think it was like forty-five degrees. you yeah. had to wear a coat walking the dog. Yeah, it was so cold. Life is rough. Yep. Same.
2: <laughs> well, guys, thanks for getting together with me. We have a chance today to continue a conversation that we began last week talking about the Biden administration and the powers of the presidency. And so we decided that we didn't have a chance to really fully dive into the notion of the executive order powers of the president. And this has gotten a lot of media attention over the course of the last um, month or so, the first few weeks of the Biden administration, um, with some of the executive orders that Joe Biden has issued. And so, as political scientists, we wanted to lend both some insight into historical trends related to presidential ex- executive orders, uh, what we can say about them, uh, the content of them, how they've shifted and changed over time. And then we want to look at some of the specific executive orders that the Biden administration has ordered and how they affect American politics. So, first, let's just lay out the overall uh, legal standing here. What are the powers of the president as they pertain to executive orders, guys?
0: Well, so the president um, has a number of different powers that are laid out in Article Two of the Constitution. Um, there are three articles of the Constitution that deal with the three respective branches of government. Um, Each of the articles, articles one, two, and three, so article one deals with Congress, article two, the executive, article three, uh, the judiciary, each article, um, section one, clause one, has what's called a vesting clause. And the vesting clause um, of article two, section one, one, uh, states that the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. And basically the executive orders sort of come out of this, out of this clause. Um, So this clause is very vague. It says essentially that the president is, you know, the, is the entity that basically carries out and enforces the laws, executes the laws, right? Executive orders ostensibly are orders that the president gives um, to the executive bureaucracy, the departments and agencies um, to carry out um, the, the, basically the laws that have been passed by Congress. Um, that's how it works in theory. It gets a little more complicated than that, but, but that's essentially where executive orders come from, where the president's authority to issue executive orders comes from. So executive orders are basically sort of directives of some sort to um, lower down departments and agencies to do something, to to um, implement regulation, to review a policy, to um, update a regulation, um, and executive orders can take a, a variety of different forms.
2: When you say forms, is this what I mean, what I hear sometimes when I hear executive order, I hear ex- uh, other kinds of verbiage used to describe these kinds of things?
0: Yeah, so so I guess the broadest the broadest term would be like executive action, right? Yes. Um, executive order is a type of executive um, action. And basically, this is the most common type that we hear about. So there are directives from a president um, as a general policy to the executive branch. Um, you know They generally specify how the president wants to implement a policy and spells out particular actions that the, that he wants the departments and agencies to carry out, um, and so that that's an executive order. But there's also things like uh, an executive memorandum, um, yep. which is like an executive order, um, but basically it's more vague. Um, the, basically, it doesn't spell out <laughs> an executive
2: notion, if you will. <laughs>
0: yes, a notion. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't specify the process for carrying out the order. How exactly? The policy is supposed to be implemented, um, and so this means that it actually doesn't have to be included in the federal register. So it can be harder to track, um, keep track of, and and they also allow presidents to make sort of these broad, sweeping, um, sweeping sort of policy changes with, and and give an enormous amount of discretion to the departments and agencies to to sort of implement things as they see fit. Um, so, for example. Um, and a lot of times these memoranda aren't sort of included in your executive order, like count, for example, depending on how, how you calculate and count these things up. So, for example, President Obama issued over 400 executive memoranda. Um, and some of them were really important, like there was dozens related to gun control alone or related to DACA, for example. A lot of what tr- Trump ex- Trump's executive actions on like tariffs on China, um, yep. asylum um, policy, like we're done through executive memoranda, essentially. Um, and then you have, um, just briefly, you have executive or presidential proclamations, um, which are very mostly for ceremonial purposes. Um, and then you get other things more in foreign policy, which we won't t- touch on, like um, executive. Ag- well, I mean, you're more than welcome to talk about executive <laughs> agreements and presidential yep. findings. Um, But, you know, one which has to do with diplomacy and the other which has to do with um, basically uh, authorization for covert actions and notification Congress. Um, Those are kind of a separate thing. Um, But, yeah.
2: Okay.
0: Those are some of your different sort of classifications.
2: Mitch, let me ask you a quick question. So we have these, these executive uh, memoranda sort of instructing various parts of the executive branch how to do their jobs. What's the difference between these sort of official orders from the White House versus the president instructing one of his cabinet members who serves at his pleasure to run their agency in a certain way? Uh, I mean, in terms of,
1: in terms of the efficacy or outcome, maybe not much. I mean, if, if the president instructs their, somebody in the cabinet to do something, then that basically, you know, that, that, that could go ahead and happen. I mean, cabinet members, cabinet level um, you know, secretaries, cabinet level secretaries have pretty substantial discretion. I mean, they are people who have an enormous amount of power over the agencies that they run. And sometimes, especially, um, you know, if Congress and the president aren't particularly interested in paying that much attention to them, they actually will determine policy, um, for an extended period within that, within the area over the agency that they run. Um, you know, I can sort of imagine, you know, um, one example of that might, uh, in the previous administration might've been Betsy DeVos. It wasn't clear that president Trump ever took any kind of serious interest in education policy, but she implemented a number of policies, um, you know, on her own, um, uh initiative and basically you know made it made a number of changes to american education policy um so that's you know if the president uh you know basically told somebody you know again whatever secretary happens to happens to be transportation um you know secretary of state whatever that they want something to happen um that would probably be a way to actually subtly make changes that the president doesn't have to publicly talk about. So probably one of the most important distinctions would be anytime the president actually puts out an executive order that goes on public record. Journalists are going to look at it. People are going to talk about it. Um, You know, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of buzz. And executive orders also have, uh, this is where things get a little bit fuzzy, (laughs) but in some ways they have a, they have, they do have a little bit more of, a technical um, standing I guess I mean okay. you actually have an order from the president that has an actual like you you know X agency should do Y um, and so there actually is a technical instruction then from the president that the agency should carry out as a result of that um, so in that technical sense there's sort of like more substance to the policy change where the president has said make this policy change okay. in practice I guess what I'm trying to say is um Agencies sometimes are slow or ineffective or even somewhat even ignore executive orders at times that they don't like. And sometimes agencies are extremely efficient at carrying out policy change that is nowhere in executive orders. (laughs) So, you know, so that's where I would say the answer to that question is extremely fuzzy. And there is no sort of like easy, I think,
2: and clean definite one way or the other on that so i hear you i I hear you saying that there's no this is fuzzy there's no one no clear one way or the other but let me just throw out an oversimplification here and react and tell me and react to this both of you please if i'm a president and i have a pretty good relationship with my key cabinet members especially early in my administration joe biden for example If I want to kind of make a public statement about a certain kind of policy and I want it to be known by the media and I want it to be sort of a matter of public record, I might go ahead and issue an executive order or a memorandum um, to get that in in the register. But if I want something to happen and I don't really want to own it, I might just tell my Secretary of Agriculture, hey, go do this, but not put it as an executive order memorandum, because then there's gonna be less scrutiny on that. Or if blame falls, it might fall on my Secretary of Agriculture instead, right?
1: Yep, Yep. No, I think that's absolutely right. That's an it's an easy way to, you know, send up trial balloons or blame shift or, you know, cover yourself. Um, Gotcha. Absolutely. Um, And and I do think you see some of that um, with every president at some point, you know, something will happen that they don't like, and immediately they just sort of say oh you know that was that was this deputy secretary
2: (laughs) in this some some moron did this i can't believe they did it nudge nudge wink wink yeah 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 Yeah. all right so let's talk about the big philosophical issue which i know you both of you're anxious to do is this a problem for our governance of our democracy the presidents have the ability to essentially legislate through the process of the executive order and bypass the legislature is this something that if we see growth in the president's using executive orders for substantive matters is this a threat to our uh, the, a well-ordered democracy
1: i think the answer <laughs> to that is complicated obviously i think there i i guess i guess I'll, I'll, I'll i only ask complicated questions i know there's only complicated questions well i think i think there's i think there's a couple of things to note i think you know, last time we spent a lot of time thinking about why a weak Congress is a problem. And so I don't want to sort of like rehash all of that to anyone yep. who didn't hear that, you know, you can go back and listen to it and what and whatnot. Um, but, uh, you know, so a weak Congress is obviously a problem, but then there's sort of two reactions to that. On the one hand, things still happen. Like, even if you have a weak Congress that isn't taking actions, there are still problems that are going to face the country, still crises that are going to arise. and the question then becomes, do you want a completely ineffective government that basically just lets situations spiral? Or do you want a government that actually does stuff and still tries to react, at least in some way, to these circumstances that come up through time? And I think the answer for the American people and, and the way that presidents have reacted is, well, we still want to react. We still want to do things. And so then presidents feel like it's fallen on them to actually take action when Congress basically doesn't. And in some ways, that's not all bad in the sense that that is still in some ways in keeping with what the founders envisioned, where they said, you know, we want an executive with energy, we want an executive that can actually react to things as they happen. Um, We want an executive that is, you know, we want a government that isn't just sort of, you know, unable to actually do, you know, to do things and take care of problems. And so in one sense, there's sort of a natural and even, um. In, you know, react. You know, in some ways, the growth of the of of executive power and executive orders is sort of a reaction to what the founders actually envisioned. I mean, where you have an energetic executive that's actually doing things. So, on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, as more and more power consolidates in the executive branch, um, you know, I think a lot of people sort of feel, um, you know, and you have the constant refrain of this idea of the imperial presidency. You have this idea that presidents are looking more and more like. Uh, you know, the Roman consuls, which are basically the executives from the Roman um, Republic and the executives in the Roman Republic accumulated more and more power until eventually um, surprise. You have the emergence of the Caesars and then you're off to the races with not even, you know, with the Senate and legislative branch. that doesn't even matter. Yeah. So I think that's what people are. That's, worried a, that's about. a scary I mean, prospect. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think one of the differences for us and maybe, you know, I'll, Keep quiet here, and Matt can sort of react and um, how he sees this. But, um, but I think one of the one of the differences or one of the things that sort of comforts people a little bit. Although it shouldn't comfort us too much because this was the same deal in Rome too. Is that you know th- we have an a- elected executive, right? So it's not like the executive is completely unaccountable to the people in some sense. I mean, um, you know, even if the executive becomes extremely powerful, which it which it is right now, yes, um, it is still ultimately. Um, mm. You know, it still ultimately has to answer to the to the American people, and has that democratic check
2: um, on it in that sense. But in some ways, the democratic check on the executive, it might help validate some of this uh, executive usurpation of power that um, by justifying just for exactly the reason you just state, you just stated too. So, um,
0: Matt. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so so many things. Um, so, so there's a lot of various reasons of why. The president has become more powerful. Um, so, you know, it's, I mean, there's all sorts of interesting debates about this, but, you know, it's clearly possible for the Congress to say, hey, we want the executive to take point on dealing with this particular policy crisis, and we're going to delegate some measure of authority. Um, to the president or a particular department or agency in this jurisdiction to do X, Y, or Z, and they can go figure out the the details. So, so clearly that is allowable to some extent. The problem is, you know, when when the president um, and you know executive branches are basically without any sort of prompting or direction from Congress, basically writing whole whole sets of policy, right? And that you're seeing so much of that now. And part of the reason you're seeing that is because Again, Congress has has um, no longer has sort of the electoral incentives to actually get involved with policymaking. Mm-hmm. There's actually disincentives to as for members of Congress to involve themselves in the policymaking process because that means you have to take a stance. That you know, doing legislative work is is long and difficult and tedious and time consuming, and you're better off uh, campaigning and going you know going on cable TV and being a pundit, right? Um, and so, and so like Mick said, I mean, there's you know, there's, there's policy problems that need to be addressed. And if Congress is shirking its duty, you know, there's, you know, the, the executive branches feel more and more compelled that they have to step in and address problems, right? So immigration policy is a prime example of this. Congress hasn't, hasn't overhauled U.S. immigration law in decades, right? It's been a long time and there's been reforms needed for a long time, but Congress, you know, isn't, hasn't been willing to to touch this or hasn't been a sufficient agreement in congress to 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 reform immigration policy but meanwhile we have all of these problems and so basically it's left up to um to the executive branch to react to implement a policy which is then um, litigated for years in the court system right and and that's how we make immigration policy now so so i guess It's fine if you have an energetic executive so long as that executive is getting good direction from the Congress and the Congress is is effective in holding the executive accountable when the executive goes off the rails. The problem is the executive isn't getting good direction anymore and then Congress doesn't have the will or the appetite to really hold the executive accountable. Um, as much. And there's all sorts of interesting reasons for that, which you can, you know, explain in terms of parties or the um, or the sort of decomposition of the committee system. And we could talk about that too. Um, but all all of this is a problem. So energy itself in the executive is not a problem, but it's it's the lack of limitations in congressional checking on it. That's that's the real source of the trouble. And sort of the one final point sort of backing up and thinking about this energy is is the and you, constitutional scholars, will talk about this. Is there's, you know, under the Articles of Confederation, of course, there was there was no executive branch. We had the Congress, right, and there was no actual no executive branch, no president. Uh, and it was determined that in order for the government to be effective, you actually have to have a government that's always existing. Congress isn't always in session. Congress can't carry out its own laws. You have to have an executive branch, and it needs to have some energy so that it can actually do things what's important is that the government is is at least you know competent and effective and that's what's going to make the government legitimate if it's competent and effective and and that's going to happen with the executive and what the what the framers of the constitution did is they created sort of an asymmetrical um energy in which the executive has far more prerogatives in power with regards to foreign policy and military policy and dealing with um in dealing with crises, whether foreign, domestic, a lot more energy there, but a lot less energy, a lot less power and maneuvering room when it comes to domestic policy, where Congress clearly, um, if you read the Constitution, seems to be the entity that's supposed to take point in you know, passing legislation, making laws that the president can then veto. But ultimately, Congress is is the one that's in the driver's seat. Um, so you have this asymmetrical sort of energy, more energy in. in foreign policy, dealing with crises, et cetera, um, but less energy in domestic policy. But what we've seen is we've seen an increase on, on both sides, right? Almost no limitations, you know, on, on the foreign policy, military policy front, right? and then increasing power on the domestic policy front as well.
2: I think one, i think one oh sorry, go ahead, Chris. I can't help but offer a real world example of this. Uh, the Biden administration just launched airstrikes into Syria um, in order to take out Iranian militias operating inside Syria. Um, and there was no authorization from Congress to do this at all. In fact, when um, the Biden administration uh, was pressed to provide justification for this, uh, they initially fell back on Article 2 of the Constitution and the president's ability to protect citizens of the United States, which they said were included citizens uh, in U.S. forward operating bases in Iraq. Um, and base and uh, really the 2001 AUMF, which uh, was passed in the in the immediate wake of 9/11, and has not been altered since. So this okay. really is the indication of Congress ceding its ability to have oversight of military operations abroad and allowing the president wide berth on these issues. Sorry, Mitch. Yeah, no, uh, no. I think that's I. You know, I think one of the things that.
1: Congress has always struggled with is is foreign policy, but I also think uh, one of the things, just to sort of pick up one of one of the points at least that Matt was um, talking about, is I think um, you know when we when we look at presidents of the past, especially presidents that are um, that we see as you know being very active or leaving a a substantial legacy, you know we think about uh, you know presidents ranging from you know as early as George Washington to thinking about people like. Jefferson or Madison, all the way up through, uh, you know, presidents like Lincoln, things like that. Right. So you look at these presidents and in the past and even really into the 1960s and 70s, you know, you think about people like Lyndon Johnson, FDR, um, folks like that. They would exercise an enormous amount of power over both foreign and domestic policy. Um, But at the end of the day, they would always see their role in policy oftentimes as influencing Congress. So in many ways, you know, did, did, did Lyndon Johnson have an enormous policy footprint? Yes, but he had that enormous policy footprint through, uh, you know, the pressure he put on Congress to pass, uh, you know, the, the numerous bills that he wanted, that he wanted passed as part of his, his legislative agenda. Um, and I, you know, this is where it's sort of, I think, I think on the one hand, there's, there's, uh, it's, it's hard to sort of like know where exactly, exactly where the breakdown, um, happens because, you know, in many ways, when we look at, when we look at that, you know, in some ways then the problem is Congress, right? Congress is no longer willing to go along with presidents, right? Congress no longer sees it as its role to actually do these things. And so maybe it's not so much the president, you know, the presidency taking power as much as it is Congress vacating power. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, it does seem that presidents have increasingly tried to use, you know, their executive powers, um, and so perhaps it also is, you know, presidents trying to just push, push further and further, and see how far, see how much they can get away with. I mean, I think about, you know, going all the way back to, um, you know, well, numerous presidents who set up. Uh, you know, basically commissions or executive office of the president things. I mean, you think about like uh, Reagan, uh, you know, giving enormous jurisdiction to the office of management and budget, you know, Um, you know, that those sort of moves made by presidents never go away. You know, Um, Democrats at the time were very upset that Reagan expanded the power of that agency and said, Oh, this shouldn't happen. But guess what? You know, (laughs) president Clinton comes into power and guess what's still there, Uh, you know? Mm -hmm. So this power sort of never given back once presidents um, take it. Um, and so yeah so i think you know it's uh, on the, uh, it's it's one of those things where i think the part of the shift is just the, the focus of presidents like where do they try to enact their agendas because i think it's always been true that effective presidents in american history have tried to influence policy they've had enormous follow- policy footprints it's just a question of sort of the medium through which they do that um that's the shift that i think people worry about
0: right and that's the thing like you know you know, both Clinton and Reagan did things to expand the power of the executive branch, but both were, you know, you know, were took sort of working with Congress fairly seriously, like trying to negotiate with Congress, understanding, like, you know, my legacy is going to be cemented yeah. in sort of the legis- the legislation that that I get through congress right and and both of them um you know especially clinton later on he sort of stumbled his first two years but found his feet sort of uh, made adjustments triangulated as he would say um and and figured out how to work with congress and then and then i think you know our two most recent sort of presidents not counting biden we'll see what happens there but But Trump and Obama have sort of moved, I think, further away from that willingness to really work with Congress. Both of them did at certain points, but but fairly quickly moved on and said, you know what, Um, just with polarization and getting agreement in Congress, um, I have things I want to get done. I, you know. And and I'm going alone, right? Um, and I'm going to use sort of the pen and phone governance um, and, you know, and sort of bypass Congress altogether. Um, and meanwhile, Congress is fighting and doesn't have the willpower to push back. And so, you know, even over the past two presidencies, you know, both parties have been complicit in, in sort of this, I would say, the acceleration of this trend.
2: Well, I want to bring us up to Joe Biden, who seems to exemplify a um, a, a bipolar strategy when it comes to this. <laughs> On the one hand, Biden has talked more so than his immediate successor, for sure, about um, unity, about reaching across the aisle, and, and especially about involving Congress. And by, and there was some belief in the part of the uh dare I say, Twitterati, um, the, the pundit <laughs> class um, to, uh, to suggest that, he, that because of Biden's legislative background, many, many, many years spent in the Senate, that Biden would be more deeply invested in the legislature as a consequence. And he might be. However, Uh, Biden has also seen a huge spate of executive orders, uh, really eclipsing um, all of his immediate predecessors, especially within the first few weeks of his of his presidency. And so simultaneously, we see a little bit of both. And so Uh, Matt, tell us a little bit about this explosion of executive orders on the part of the Biden administration.
0: Um, Yeah. So briefly, um, so in the first three weeks of holding office, Biden issued a whopping 38 executive orders. Um, This is nearly double the amount of executive orders um, that we saw under Trump and Obama during their first three weeks in office, um, which is itself an acceleration over George W. Bush, who had only two. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, it is a lot. Um, Although if you take into account the number of executive orders that had to do with COVID-related issues, um, you sort of take those out because we're in Mm -hmm. an unprecedented time. um, That number comes way down. Um, And then so if you couple sort of COVID and also sort of Trump responding to some of the most controversial sort of aspects of Trump's executive orders, like related to asylum or immigration or travel bans from predominantly Muslim countries, other sorts of things, once you sort of take those out and take COVID executive orders out, it binds fairly well in keeping with what we've seen under Trump and Obama. So it's still a fair amount, but um, but you have to put it in context.
2: So let me just throw one more thought in there, just tying to something you guys have said previously, which is, a lot of these orders that Biden administration has issued um, are COVID related. This is exactly what, how the presidency works during times of crisis, the presidency accrues power that it does not easily give back once those crises have ended. Right. Um, and we also see sort of this reactionary policy on the part of the Biden administration, basically overturning very quickly a number of executive orders that were passed at various points during the Trump administration. So, if you're sort of following along and hypothesizing, well, what if we have a Republican administration in 2024? Will we see this big uh, mushroom of of reversing certain Biden policies in the early weeks of the of the administration? That would be something to watch for then too. Right, and I guess that's
0: one. <laughs> I was going to say Whatever. that's one reason why um, sort of the the growth of executive power and the use of these executive orders is problematic because it creates this sort of this gigantic swing in sort of the the overall sort of policy and regulatory regime because one president comes in implements a whole bunch of stuff by executive order which means the next president who comes in from the next party probably is able to come in and undo all of that so so you you get this very unstable. Um, set of laws right which creates all sorts of social and economic problems and it's really not a way and and undermines the legitimacy of the country raises the stakes for who wins the presidency which makes you know for all sorts of unhealthy sort of (laughs) all sorts of unhealthy uh, politics and exacerbates polarization um it makes the whole problem worse right so um so you know the overuse of these executive orders does i think have uh, a deleterious effect on our political system as a whole Nick, please
1: no i was just gonna say i mean just to pick up on that i think one of the things we we probably forgot to mention earlier on that i do think is important is presidential power in in that sense especially especially focused on executive orders um is is in some sense sort of fleeting um you have an enormous amount of power while you're there um but that power then dissipates as soon as you're gone um Whereas laws persist um, unless they are overturned by Congress, and so um, executive orders are much easier to reverse as soon as you have a new president um, it, as as it's not it's not that they you know it's not that you can just completely reverse them. Um, there is a certain little, you know there are processes you have to go through to do it, but the bottom line is if a president wants to overturn an executive order from their predecessors, they can and um, that's that's essentially how how that how that works and I think. On the one hand again that might comfort us in the sense that um you know it's not that this power is is completely unlimited and you know is, is unchangeable um but as matt pointed out it leads to all sorts of other negative <laughs> negative things
2: so this matt you seem to be suggesting that a lot of the artifact of this large number of of, of executive orders in the biden administration is an artifact of the of the COVID crisis um does that mean that, let's say hypothetically, two years from now we'll see sort of a really evening out of uh, the number of executive orders the Biden administration has passed, and we'll and and, and this is sort of an, an anomalous blip, or could this be harbinger of his overall governing style?
0: Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean it's hard to prognosticate on these things. I mean. I mean we'll see. I don't necessarily think we can read too much into what Biden's going to do in 2 years once the covid, you know, pandemic is under control and the economy has sort of gotten back to its its previous state. Um I think by then we'll have to see, you know, I mean in 2 years we'll have another congress and so that you know the, so the source of pressure might be from from that direction, especially if he's You know, depending on what he wants to do, if he wants to run again, you know, if he wants to tee up, tee up, you know, his predecessor, um, all of these things are going to sort of put factor into the calculation of how much he wants to do by executive order, right? Um, So, and a lot of that's going to hinge on how things go in the next couple of years and what happens in 2022. So, I don't really want to, I wouldn't read too much into what's going on now with COVID into what's going on later.
2: Well, it would test the patience of our listeners, or perhaps at this point, listener, um, to, <laughs> oh, I mean, no, I, I, I'm teasing. We love the people who are listening to this, and we love getting email from you, uh, too, so um, therapy at gmail.com. But um, we do want to highlight a few of the executive orders that have already been signed by the Biden administration. So, I've, at, so we, uh, I've asked each of us to kind of pick a couple of things to focus on. And to give you guys a chance, um, I'll just go first here with one of mine. And I, 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 I'm picking this one because it's politically important, but also because it exemplifies this notion of the back and forth nature of executive orders, and that is the Mexico City policy. And so for... Um, Going back to at least Ronald Reagan, uh, Republican presidents have signed an executive order, uh, a gag rule basically saying that uh, federal money can't be given to international agencies, aid agencies, for example, that also provide abortions. And so what even if those agencies are doing lots of other development work or healthcare provision work, if they provide an abortion, they can't receive U.S. federal aid money and this is widely liked and applauded by um uh, republican constituents especially within the pro-life community and every democratic president um since reagan has revoked that rule so it gets invoked and revoked invoked and revoked um every uh, every change of administration and so uh, donald trump uh re-invoked it um at the beginning of his administration and now the biden administration has pulled it back again um Mitch, uh, let's go let's go to you next. What's a um what's an executive order you've got your eye on here?
1: Uh, so one uh one executive order that is extremely lengthy um and has has a lot in it is uh his executive order on tackling the climate climate crisis at home and abroad. Um and this is a this is one of the in some ways I think more substantive of the executive orders. Um some of them have um you know uh, but basically in looking and looking at this particular, uh, order, um, it, it does a number of things. So part of what it does is instruct, um, a- a- uh, agencies to begin a number of studies or begin reviews of their policies and practices. Um, it also, uh, pu- it also, uh, initiates a number of policies to try to reinstate regulations that had been suspended or, um, ended under the Trump administration regarding climate change. And then it was also. Uh, This is essentially where uh, the Biden administration is rejoining uh, the Paris Climate Accord and um, committing the United States back to um, trying to trying to address um, climate issues. And so, um, you know, so basically uh, one of the things, you know, the sort of sort of the big picture of this order is is, again, sort of a reorientation in some ways of the executive branch. This is sort of a classic example of what we've just been talking about where the presidency is, uh, first of all, doing sort of a whiplash thing, where on the one hand, the previous administration had been headed in one direction on climate policy, now we're headed in a completely different direction on climate policy, so, and and of course, we're headed in the direction of the previous president. So, you know, we're sort of like, you know, we're headed one direction, The uh, you know, Trump uh, with Obama, Trump turned us in a completely different direction, now Biden's turned us in back in that, you know, the previous direction, so it's just sort of like, what are we doing? You know, where are we going? And immediately has that, that, that sort of problem.
2: Um, Can I just interject to to a
1: couple of things that,
2: yeah. Um, I just, and I I just, I, I think this is probably obvious, but it's worth saying that like on something like tax policy, that sort of tacking back and forth could express the will of the people. Right. Um, but for something like climate change policy, they probably don't want us to be combating climate change half the time and not combating it half the time, right? It's either one of those things where we should apply consistent pressure in one direction or the other, but because of the party's differences, we're not able to do that. Sorry, please.
1: No, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's totally right. Um, so uh, another thing I think that's, that's, uh, I think I think there are a couple of related elements to to thinking about this, too. I mean, one of them is uh, that this this has implications, obviously, for foreign policy in that um, you know there's enormous questions um as far as as far you know no matter what anyone thinks about climate change, you know, if you're a climate skeptic or whatever, um the fact that many countries in the world are attempting to address climate change in the United States essentially unilaterally said that they weren't um, you know, really sends a message about where the United States stands in relation to a lot of other countries. And I think Biden sees this as one of his ways to try to, um, unite the United States in some ways with other, with other nations. And so I think this has, um, maybe Chris, you'll want to talk about that more, but I think, you know, there are definitely sort of, I think, foreign policy implications to this. Um, but even beyond that, I think there's sort of like two other things that I'll just say about it. And then I'll, let go here, because I I know I don't want to tax everybody too much on this. But one of the the first thing I'll say is um, that climate policy is extremely influential. I mean, there are huge uh, things at stake. And I think, you know, the the depth of these uh, of this executive order on that uh, really cuts to that. I mean, this has implications for energy in the United States. This has implications, um, again, even actually for tax policy, obviously. Um, this has implications for how we're spending and investing money um, in terms of infrastructure. You know, are we building more roads? Are we building more uh, trains? Are we building, uh, you know, what are we doing about uh, airports, etc.? right? All these sorts of questions come in and what kind of uh, you know, what kind of, what, what do we do with the market? You know, what, what kind of, what kind of things do we, uh, encourage people to incentivize people to, to produce? I mean, do we pr- incentivize car manufacturers to make electric cars, things like that. Um, and so that, so it has enormous implications that way. And I think that sort of gets at the power that these executive orders can have. But then the last thing I'll say is this, and that is, you know, in thinking about this, um, you know, in thinking, in thinking about this executive order, I think sometimes, um, what gets sort of lost in all of this. And I think this is where, um, this is where I, you know, as, as somebody who's think who tries to think about these things as a person of faith, I think one of the things that gets lost in some ways, and even framing this as around climate change is in many ways, uh, you know, this idea that, you know, that, that we as, as humans are supposed to be stewards of the earth. And I think, mm. um, you know, I think in many ways, um, while obviously I don't, you know, I don't think that, that's necessarily, you know, I'm not here to sort of like critique framing or whatever, but I do think in terms of looking at these issues in, in large scale, that's, that's the way to, to think about these issues. I think, I think in some ways sort of um, focusing only on climate change in some ways can be, you know, can sort of distract us. Um, And especially distract us in the sense of how polarized, you know, we've talked about polarization, how polarized this issue has become with the parties. It can distract us from the actual values um, at stake in these conversations. Um, And it's not that this necessarily means that everything that everybody wants to do for climate change is the right thing to do. Um, You know, there are certainly disagreements to be had on what's the proper way to steward the earth. But I think sometimes people sort of lose track of the fact that there is, um, you know, especially for people of faith and, and for Christians, there is a, underlying um and you know imperative that we have to consider these issues and take them seriously i don't think it's right for us to just sort of immediately say oh that's climate change all oh, that caters to a particular type of person or particular polarized uh, area and so therefore that's what this issue is about you know we always need to be thinking about what values and what yeah. um you know what what kind of what kind of what kind of um moral issues are at stake in this
0: I want to push back just a little bit. I mean, I, I will. I will say this. I mean, so so I agree. I mean, Christians should be concerned about you know caring for for the earth um, and for our environment, and a lot of that goes beyond sort of climate change policy, right? Um, I think there's also good Christian cases to be made. Um, sort of, well, even not just Christian cases, um, sort of, sort of more scientific cases about how a lot of sort of climate change policy that is sort of. Fronted now is actually does nothing to address the issue, but that's a whole nother discussion. I want to come back to the executive order um, because the executive order to re-enter the Paris, you know, climate accord itself doesn't actually that particular executive order doesn't do anything domestically to change U.S. policy. And what's important about that executive order isn't so much um, what it accomplishes in changing U.S. environmental and energy policy, but sort of. U.S. foreign policy and what it signals to the world. And and the fact that we sort of been sort of flip-flopping, you know, between, um, you know, being part of the accords and then leaving and then jumping back in mm-hmm. is just sort of goes back to the whole point of when you leave these sorts of decisions up to, you know, the president to enter an agreement and then that agreement can then be sort of canceled or, you know, withdrawn from and then the next person comes in and, and enters back into it. But that's a problem for foreign policy because it means that the U.S. doesn't have a sort of a stable Sort of policy and sort of image that it's projecting to the world, and maybe Chris, you can sort of blow up everything I'm saying, but but this is why ultimately the 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 framers of the Constitution said we want the Senate to be the one that's ultimately authorizing all the treaties that are made. Right? Um, The president, yeah, is is involved with negotiating treaties. Ultimately, the Senate is the one that's supposed to to ratify these treaties, and the reason why we do it with the Senate is because the Senate is the most stable institution outside of the courts, the most stable sort of democratic representative institution in the federal government. And there is a very interesting case, I forget if it was Hamilton or Madison made of like, and we want that sort of stability in foreign policy, because you also become a laughing stock of the nations and not be taken seriously, if we don't have a stable foreign policy. Um, and you lose that stability when basically, presidents um, basically instead of using the normal sort of treaty making apparatus basically enter into sort of executive agreements um, or other sorts of arrangements um, unilaterally without the approval of the senate and of course that bypasses the senate and has sort of you know certain you know amount of political expediency perhaps but it also creates other problems when that's how foreign policy is done so i'll get off my hobby horse now
2: well, with that, Matt, uh, there is more we could say about foreign policy. I'm going <laughs> to punt on that for right now, but I'm going to ask you to share your uh, first pick for an executive order you're paying attention to.
0: Okay, yeah. So so oftentimes um, executive orders will, and we've kind of said this, they're going to instruct an agency to do something. Sometimes what it does is they instruct an agency to simply look into a possible future policy change. And so it's not technically a new policy, but a signal to the bureaucracies about how they might be expected to implement policies in the future um, or what executive orders might come down the pipe in the future. Now, sometimes these orders don't get a lot of press, um, but sometimes they do get press. And a lot of times when they do get press, um, they're just misreported and misunderstood. So... Probably the best recent example of this is the one of the first executive orders that uh, President Biden signed on January 20th. This is the executive order on preventing and combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. Long time. Now, the news coverage was um, was pretty egregious. Um, There was a lot of heavy editorializing um, and heavy on the editorializing and light on the facts. So for example, CNN's coverage says Biden's restoring what Trump stole from the LGBTQ Americans. And this executive order, and I was reading the articles on it was heralded as ending workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation identity. One outlet said that Biden changed the definition of sex, um, which he didn't. Actually. <laughs> um, basically, basically, the change of the definition of sex did occur, but it didn't occur by Biden. It occurred back during a Supreme Court case that we talked about, um, the the three of us, um, over the summer in a case um, called Bostock in which um, Gorsuch, um, who is a Trump appointee, right? um, Wrote the majority opinion and basically um, through a particular sort of, you know, literalist interpretation of US code, um, and Title Seven basically changed the definition of, of sex to include the concepts of gender identity and sexual orientation. What Biden's executive order does is basically signals to the departments and agencies that, hey, there's this ruling out there that changed the definition of a word in U.S. code. And we have to figure out how our internal policies and our regulate, regulatory regime is going to have to change to comply with this new term that, I mean, this term that's been changed by the Supreme court. Um, And so this particular executive order basically changes nothing. It signals to the departments and agencies that they're going to have to basically consider what sorts of changes they're going to need to make. Now it also allows Biden to score political points um, with the constituency that's concerned with those things, but it actually doesn't do anything for them specifically. Um, and I, I know a lot of conservatives are really upset about this. And and ultimately, Biden didn't actually change the term. Right? It was he was basically reacting to a Supreme Court ruling that changed the term sex. So um, so anyway, that's just one example. You know, we won't. Delve into you know the the case itself. You can go back listen to our Supreme Court um, podcast from the summer if you have nothing to better do with your time. But um, basically, this is just one example of sometimes how Supreme Court, uh, excuse me, executive orders um, actually aren't doing anything to change policy, but are sort of misreported um, and you know provoke outrage or glee um, on the respective sides, and can be used to score political points. But. Sure. Um, that's, that's my first executive order.
1: I wonder, uh, I'm Mitch, oh, yeah, I, I was gonna say, I wonder to what extent, you know, and I, I, I mean, I, I, actually, I totally agree with that, with that take, I think. Um, and, and also, I mean, I would say the same about a number of the things in you know, the, the climate executive order or exor- orders as well. I mean, a lot of them are sort of like, we should study this more and things like that, you know, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. you know, um, so there, so there is a lot of that, but I do wonder, and I think, you know, just to sort of think about the, you know, the glee or the angst, depending on, um, who you're talking about, um, on that particular order, um, is in some ways spurred by the fact that under, under the Trump administration, the application of that Supreme Court case probably wasn't going to happen, or at least wasn't going to happen. Um, yeah, probably probably wouldn't have happened under, under that administration, um, you know, whereas Biden is immediately signaling that he is going to, um, you know, apply this, the shift in interpretation of the Constitution. Yep. And, you know, on the one hand, is that an actual change? I mean, as you, you know rightly pointed out, you know, um, that order doesn't actually directly. I think we even had a brief conversation um, about this over email or something like that, you know, and looking at that order, um, you know, it doesn't actually do anything substantive other than that other than sort of like signal this. But on the other hand, it does seem to sort of indicate a new a new policy in the sense that of actually applying that and I on the one hand, maybe this is something to talk about later too. This sort of like signals the weakness of the Supreme Court too, um, both both the strength and weakness. Actually, I mean the strength in the sense that they have the ability to change these the meanings of these terms and our understanding of the Constitution, but also the weakness in the sense that um, until a president is ready to implement the policy that they prescribe, the Supreme Court is sort of just sort of out there. They're like, "Yep, we said that," you know. <laughs>
2: As a layperson sitting on the outside of this looking in, I've always felt like the this is the crux of the biggest potential constitutional crisis is the is the is the, the court just makes a, a firm decision on something. And the executive simply refuses to recognize it and implement it. Um, uh, Matt or Mitch, do you have another um, uh, executive order that you're following? Um, this is the problem with being a host. Is I should <laughs> recognize that when I ask two people a question at the same time, that I'm not going to get an answer. So, uh, Matt, how about you? Yeah, this
0: is also the problem of doing this, um, o- you know, virtually um, over Google Hangouts. Um, Versus if we're in the same room, I think this would be easier. So what one day, one day maybe. Um, okay, so, so there's another executive order um, that is, so, my, so this is another sort of example of an executive order that asks a department or agency to go look into something, right? Um, but this one turns out to potentially be more consequential. Um, so basically there's a provision um, or several provisions within an executive order that deals with public health and the environment. Um, and so basically, you know, incoming presidents are oftentimes going to direct a lot of the agencies and departments under them to conduct a sweeping review of their internal priorities and policies um, in order to bring these departments and agencies more into line with the priorities of the incoming administration, right? And to overturn regulations that are disliked that were, you know, implemented by the previous administration. So for Biden, one of these is the. I think this is the one Mitch was referencing, uh, the executive order on protecting public health and the environment and restoring science to tackle the climate crisis. That's the whole name. Um, Now, these sorts of executive orders usually just have tons of components. um, And... They're complicated and it's it's boring, it's like thicker than the mud at the bottom of the <laughs> Potomac, so no, one, no one's paying attention, right? Um, and so, but buried within these orders can oftentimes be these actually quite important policy changes or reviews that lead to policy changes. Um, one example from this executive order is um, basically the Biden administration is directing to the Department of Justice to uh, consider ending a policy that prohibits settlement payouts to favored third parties. Um, So so bear with me here, Uh, here's how this works. So basically, sometimes a company or corporation violates a law, right? Maybe they violate environmental law. Uh, That's sort of a common one, right? Um, And this brings harm to particular consumers or to taxpayers in general. And so the Department of Justice launches an investigation and then threatens to sue the company for violating the law in federal court. That's how these things are sort of enforced, right? Um, and so they seek to prosecute the case. Now they can sue the bank, the manufacturer, the energy producer, whatever the company does, they can sue for a large fee in order to sort of punish and hold them accountable. And then to take that money um, that you know they, they've won, right? Through the court case that's awarded by the courts and then t- basically use that money to basically pay the taxpayer back um, for you know, for the harm that was caused to the taxpayer, or set up a relief fund specifically for those people who are injured, um, or to provide consumer relief, right? Um, and so, the, basically, this money is supposed to go directly back into the U.S. Treasury. Now, what the DOG began to do is to settle some of these cases out of court. They'd say, "All right, we're going to sue you, um, Company A, for two billion dollars in court." However, We'll decide not to prosecute you if you settle out of court for only $1 billion. Um, and we also won't pursue pulling your licensures and and all the other things that we could do to you as long as you settle for $1 billion. Um, but this $1 billion is basically going to go to a private and unrelated third party of our choosing. You just hand over the money and you get to walk away and everything's fine. Um, and of course the company is gonna take this option every single time, right? Um, it would be crazy not to, right? And so it's a it's a no-brainer for these companies. And so basically this policy has been used historically to create giant slush funds, which then are directed to completely unrelated nonprofits. Um, oftentimes political advocacy or activist groups that have no connection to the actual case. Um so sometimes these are you know charitable groups um that we're all familiar with, Habitat for Humanity, Catholic charities, others. Sometimes they're activist groups. Um National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, the National Urban League, um, and basically what this, and and sometimes even um, more sort of partisan um, and ideologically driven um, groups, right? And so basically, this this policy is a violation of the power, the Congress's power of of appropriations to basically raise money, you know, to tax and to spend, right? Um, and basically, it's an executive agency sending money to a third party. Um, which ultimately would be Congress's role. Congress can authorize, you know, giving money to a third party for something, but basically it's the executive taking on this role. um, And this is potentially violations of, you know, various principles of ethics, possibly other regulations. It sounds like a shakedown. (laughs) Yeah, it it is. Um, And and some of it is, I mean, you can look up some some really crazy examples of this. Um, This tactic was used all the way back under George W. Bush, It was expanded significantly by the Obama DOJ Um, in 2017. Congress tried to ban this practice. You think, wow, Congress should be able to get on board with this. But it didn't go through Congress, right? Go figure. Um, Insert previous discussion about Congress, congressional dysfunction, right? Um, And Attorney General Sessions, who was um, the first attorney general under Trump, if I remember correctly, um, basically instructed the DOJ to basically put a ban on this practice. Like, we are no longer going to do this. Basically, the Biden administration has basically said you should reconsider um, this policy and basically lifting the ban. And it turns out just within the past couple of weeks, um, basically, the ban has been removed. But it's not yet clear if the Biden administration is going to, and the Biden DOJ Department of Justice is going to allow for um, for these sorts of third-party settlements. But basically, they've reopened the door to this. Now, this is important for all sorts of reasons. It gets into separation of powers issues. It gets into ethics. It gets into sort of executive overreach um, and all you know all sorts of other problems. And and all this is buried in just you know one little thing, in an executive order. Um, but you
2: know it didn't get a lot of attention. I want to have a reaction to that, but I'm just kind of stunned that this be, this practice was something that was ongoing. It's not something I knew well about. So, I'm yeah. This is uh, uh this is significant at at, a, at least at an ethical level, if not at a at a jurisprudential level. Mitch, do you have another one you want to go, or should I take the last one? Uh, you can take the last one. I I mean, we could
1: talk about. Um, I guess maybe maybe for the sake of of just filling in, I'll I'll. Talk about. <laughs> mentioned something that we probably, maybe we'll talk about briefly, but, um, one that I have been following as well, partially, you know, not at all because it has personal implications, but, um, is student loan relief. Um, (laughs) and this is particularly interesting, I think, um, because it has sparked more of a debate than I expected, I think in some ways, um, you know, I think a lot of folks expected, um, you know, expected the Biden administration to take care of that um, either go one way or the other very quickly, either sort of very quickly either decide to have an enormous program of forgiving a lot of student loans, um, or to basically say, nope, we're not forgiving any student loans. And his executive order basically punts on it. I mean, his executive order just says, we're going to, you know, pause payments for another few months, but it sort of like has been part of what has reopened that, that, that debate, I think in a way that, um, I wasn't really expecting, and I'm not sure other people were expecting to be quite as hot as, as as it's become.
2: No, that's a really good point. And stay tuned on that because there's, this is shipping up to be one of those kind of debates we've talked about where the, the far left, the center, and the right are are sticking out different positions and are gonna pull the Biden administration possibly in two.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and and, and no on please. that, to
0: get to, to, get to uh, question you at, answer asked earlier Chris um is that i mean so you know biden has been asked pointedly like would you use an executive order to to basically wipe away huge amounts of student loan debt like up to $50,000 and he said mm-hmm. no i don't think i actually have the authority to do that i could maybe do up to 10 um and i'd mm-hmm. be willing to do that although he's not in a hurry to do it i think he'd much rather get it through congress right yeah. um so biden has shown you know at least some restraint I mean, this isn't a high bar necessarily, but shown some restraint and saying like, hey, there's there's only so much that I as president and am able to do. Right. Some of these things really do have to go through Congress. And so so we'll see if he changes his tune later on um, and how much pressure there is on him, um, you know, over the next few months. But that does seem to indicate to me that um, that he has some sense of his own own limitations of what what he is really authorized to do.
2: I think and I, I like I find it well I should say I find it interesting the way that he adjudicated the difference between 10,000 and 50,000, which wasn't just a limit on his presidential authority, but was a rationale based upon those two groups of debt holders looking looking different basically that the fifty thousand um, uh, dollar debt holder was somebody who um, completed a four-year degree or got close to one at a liberal arts college or at a, um, at a four-year institution, whereas the $10,000 debt holder might be somebody who's completed some community college, maybe up to an associate's degree, but maybe just only has some college and that level of debt is preventing them from getting further education. And so right. he's sort of sort of drawing this difference between what that debt means. And I find that to be an interesting sort of philosophical approach too. Plus it actually resonates with populism because it's a lot easier to sell the American people on helping uh, students get through community college than it is financing um, elite private uh, college, uh, four-year
0: degrees. Right. Well, right. I mean, so the rationalization that he's giving is sort of on a ethical as well as a, you know, political for political reasons. Right. Although, and and not the strictly legal ones. Um, but I think there's definitely sort of the legal rationale under undergirding it as well. Like, well, really like, Legally, the ten thousand is a stretch, but the fifty dollars, fifty thousand is like way beyond what I think I can do. So I think there's a, a legal reason that's been largely unstated, but but that's probably operating. But we'll, we'll see.
2: All right, as coda, I'm going to throw one more in here. We don't even need to talk about it very much, but I think it's relevant given the state of the world that we're in. Um, the out of um, Genuine grievance, which I will, as an international relations scholar, support. The Trump administration made the decision to withdraw the United States from the World Health Organization. Now, I say legitimate grievance. The World Health Organization really did screw up the initial analysis of COVID-19. They trusted the Chinese government when the Chinese government said that there wasn't a pandemic occurring, when there clearly was a pandemic occurring and the Chinese government knew that. Um, The World Health Organization has has given way too much deference to countries and this is a problem with international institutions that rely on member states cooperation to facilitate interstate cooperation this is not an investigative body they don't get to like like the iaea they don't get to go into countries and investigate unless the country shares data with them that said um, the Trump administration being angry that the, that the World Health Organization messed this up, withdrawing from the World Health Organization does not put the United States in a more advantageous position. It only gives countries like China more leverage over the World Health Organization. It doesn't chastise in any way. So uh, the Biden administration decided to rejoin the World Health Organization, which if we want to affect the organization at all, is the correct position to take. Um, and I think what COVID-19 has shown us is some level of greater international information sharing probably would be good for combating pandemics. But Matt, you don't look I have, convinced.
0: I have so many thoughts on, on. I, I remember doing a deeper dive into the WHO last spring in my public policy class um, when we were kind of responding to COVID in real time. And I always was a little skeptical of the WHO, but the more I delve into it, the more I'm like, wow, it is a fundamentally broken institution. And in some ways, like, the things that it provides like information sharing um, sort of uh, sort of a, a form for scientists to, to collaborate, whatever, like, really like that was more useful 30 or 40 years ago. And a lot of sort of advances in, in technology and the ability to share information more easily now really undermines sort of the original purpose of having the WHO. So really the bulk of the money that they spend is flying scientists around to fancy conferences and private jets like that's the bulk of of the money right that the who spends i actually look at the spending breakdown it's bad it's really bad so I, I agree like well it's interesting like there's there's scholars who were saying like look i mean we want to influence the who but and we probably have to join be part of the who to influence them but even then is it so broken and it's just such beyond repair like is it even worth it anymore? Should we set up an alternative institution? And I think that's an interesting yeah. and important discussion to have.
2: And, we, and, won't and there, There's some precedent for doing that. Um, yeah. It's it's not a good precedent, I'm sorry to say. The theory is good that you could create an alternative health information sharing network resource allocation right. program. Um, and the, But when the UN has tried this, it's often ended up looking like the Human Rights Council. So you have a bunch (laughs) of bad actors on the human rights commission. And so you get, you say, okay, we can't really get rid of the commission because that would be bad and no one wants to vote for getting rid of it. So we'll just create another one. We'll create a council this time and try to make sure that none of the bad apples end up on the council. And then you end up having these sort of bloat of human rights officials. In the UN, you don't want that either. You want a clear clearinghouse for health information, and that means that if it can't be the World Health Organization, then the World Health Organization has to go away and be replaced with something else. Right. Um, and honestly, if countries like the United States and China could sort of agree that good information is in everyone's interest, this would happen pretty quickly. It's just a matter of if they can agree to want to do that or not. Well, right, and and
0: and agree that we shouldn't make you know who and related fights just a proxy for geopolitics right yeah um but I, I agree with you i mean my mo on things is like better to sort of try to reform the institutions that we have than to like try to scrap them all together and start over so um, so even if it if it has a price so
2: all right guys it is past our deadline we gotta get out of here <laughs> Um, when we come back, uh, Matt, do you want to preview our, uh, upcoming episode We're we're kind of moving into a sort of a, um, every other week kind of schedule here? Um, I don't you know.
0: know. We actually have to talk about what we're going to talk about. I, I think we had discussed a little bit of how, you know, we're, we're almost a year, um, a year out from when COVID really, um, hit us full force and everything shut down like March 13th, right? That Friday. Mm-hmm. Kind of the hammer dropped. I remember it distinctly. Um, so we're coming up on that, and so I was thinking, you know, sometime in the month of March, maybe the next episode, we'll see. Um, we're going to do sort of like a, a, a retrospective, looking back, looking at um, sort of, you know, what what do we learn, you know, not about pandemic and epistemology and how viruses spread, but look about look at the policy responses um, and look at the effect COVID's had on our politics. So many things we could talk about.
2: Mitch, does that sound good to you? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, All right. I'm already thinking of punny titles. Cough, cough, wink, wink. Please no. (laughs) uh, The one I have for this episode is so egregious. I'm going to prevent myself from doing it. So, um, all right, guys. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. You can always reach out to us with questions, with ideas for topics you'd like us to cover. Email us, electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the channel for the podcast. It's channel 3900. You can find it on Spotify, on Apple, uh, Apple iTunes. Um, you can find it on all your major podcast purveyors of any kind that you can find. Um, And email the podcast channel at channel3900 at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to things like Avatar with Academics, Bookish at Bethel, Video Store, and a whole bunch of other things coming down the pipe. Until you hear from us again, thanks for listening, and go Royals.